Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Chris and Aidan, for their support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with the first Mexican conductor to appear on the podcast. Over a long and distinguished career, he's conducted all across the planet, but mainly divided his time between the Flint Symphony Orchestra in Michigan, where he's been music director for 33 years, and Buenos Aires, where he's been the principal conductor of the Buenos Aires Philharmonic for 15 years, and general artistic and production director of the Teatro Colón for five years. It's a great pleasure to welcome Enrique Arturo Di Mecca. Enrique, it's lovely to see you and to speak with you. It was 2019 when we met backstage at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires. Uh, it was lovely to finally meet you, and um, it's lovely to see you again today. How are you? Fine, thank you. It's lovely to see you too, because now with this technology we can see each other, and we are like 9,000 kilometers away from each other. Yes. Miles, I'm not, I'm not too sure. It's far away. And um, just to see your face is wonderful and hear your voice is even better. So I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you for, in the, for the invitation and thanks for um, putting me to your audiences and to pick my brain to, <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. see what, what is in there, if there is any. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's lots in there. I know you're actually currently in Buenos Aires, and I was just saying before I press record how much I love that city. I've been going there, I don't know, I've been there maybe 12 times now, and I've built up such a lot of friends. And it was finally, lovely last time, finally, when I went and conducted your orchestra, the Buenos Aires Philharmonic, and I did Shostakovich Eighth Symphony to see you and meet you. Um, in this podcast, the first thing I do is go right back to the beginning. And you come from a musical family. Your father was a cellist, your mother a pianist, and you started quite young um, playing the violin at age six. Was music ever always going to be something you were going to do? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I began to speak, to, to mumble words, and the first words were do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Before I could ever say, uh, probably even Papa and Mama, I was mm. saying Doran Fasol. Yeah. And um, I was listening and hearing music all day long. And, but not only because we have radio or we have stereos, actually, we have neither of both. Mm. It's because there were students coming, and my father had uh, his colleagues that would come to rehearse. So we hear music all day long, mm. live music. Live music, so, yeah. Yeah. We learn to love, and I say we because I have two brothers, yeah. an elder one and a younger one, and I have only five sisters. So... <laughs> only five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we are all musicians. We all turn out to be musicians, and my father was our teacher. Yeah. And um, But when we were kids, uh, the first four of us, I'm the fourth one, so we started um, studying with my father. He was a terrific teacher. He was a cellist, but he was able to teach us violin too. Yeah. And my elder sister, obviously, because being bigger, she was playing the cello. And the next one of my sisters was playing the viola. And then mm -hmm. my brother was the first violin, and I was second violin. 
So we started to, to play the classical music right away. And sometimes, you know, simple things, not so complicated, but simple things uh, from Boccherini or from Vivaldi, uh, then we can manage with our techniques. And little by little, when we start developing more, more and more, we started with Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven's quartets. Mm. And we're able to just to really grab the spirit of an ensemble and how to produce the sounds are necessary for making the music happen. Yeah, music yeah. Is, is, um, especially in a string quartet, is like the perfect format. Yes, and it it's is. The base yeah. for, for many things because it has a four voice uh, part, uh, which is based uh, for the harmony and for the counterpoint and all of that. You learn so much just by playing string quartets. Mm. It really is magical. Um, and then you have to really be able to dialogue with your colleagues <laughs> and, and what part is more important than the other. Yes. And, uh, of course, being second violin, as you know, second second sounds like a second, and you want to say I'm second to none. Yes. And, <laughs> but uh, I was very young. I was seven when I uh, was playing already in the quartet, and I asked my father why was my name Enrique Arturo. Mm. And he said Enrique because of your uh, uh, your grandfather, your mother's father, and Arturo because of Toscanini. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, you mean the the conductor? He said, yes. Yeah. I said, oh, that's what I want to be, a conductor. <laughs> I said, but what am I doing then playing second violin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you went on to have, we'll come to your, your very famous violin teacher, or the teacher you studied with in a minute. But I'm going to ask, because I didn't really mention at the beginning that you're from Mexico. And I, I wonder whether you were always being uh, good little children and playing string quartets and Beethoven and Mozart, or whether you did ever go out and play, you know, some of the more indigenous local music, or even go into, you know, mariachi or anything like that. Was it always classical and straight, or did you you, do, you ever slip and go and go off and play in the other stuff? Yes, actually, we were playing classical only. Yeah. And i uh, tell you a little story that we used to practice and we we were living in this city in the north of Mexico called Monterrey, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's very hot in the, in the most of the times in the summers, and it gets cold in the winters. Okay. It's very extreme because it's kind of a desert-like. Yeah. Um, so my father made us practice in front of a window that would face the street for two <laughs> reasons, or three actually. It was because we have natural light, yeah, and second. And we will have some kind of a breeze or air conditioning, so to speak. Yeah. Because yeah. we have the current. And the other one is because everyone that was strolling on the street, uh, sometimes they would stop to listen what we were doing. Mm. And my father wanted us to uh, to ask for us to get used to audiences. Yeah. And then any movement won't distract us from concentration. Yeah. So we used to practice there every day and prepare our concerts and recitals. And one day, uh, a man, uh, when we had a, just a little bit of a break, he said, uh, can I ask a question? Uh, and said, yes, sure. I said, you live here, so you're going to stay here. You are not going out at all. I said, no, we're not going to say, because I, I'll be back. I'm going, to, I'm going to go home and I want to bring something for you. Mm. And so he went back 
later on, like an hour or two, I don't remember how long, we never thought he was going to come back, and he brought an LP. Yeah. And uh, so he handed and said, I want to give you this as a present. It's my favorite recording and my favorite pieces, but I think you deserve more than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, can use, you, can, you can have a better usage. And we, we accepted it humbly. Yeah. And after he leaves, we said to dad, he said, but how are we going to play this? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a stereo. Yeah. Okay, so say, okay, well, I guess it's time for us to, to purchase a stereo. So we went to this this um, this store, and by the way, it was called Sears, you know, right. Sears yeah. Robok. And my father had an account in Sears Robok, and he bought this long stereo, you know, the one that had the speakers, and on top of the speakers, you can put their records. Yeah. Or the yeah. LP. So he's making the payment and we say that, but only one recording. <laughs> and he said, well, then go and choose uh, some more. Yeah. Say at least three or four. And so we go there and we look to the, to the music and there are only four LPs of classical music. The rest, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we picked up and it was the New World Symphony, and then Swan Lake, Beethoven, fifth, mm-hmm. and then um, the Trout by Schubert. Yes, yeah. And then one of my sisters says, you know, I found uh, another uh, quartet, because we were looking for quartets, and yes. they said, okay, just bring it, and let's go home with all the, the recordings and everything. So we went home, and we put the, the first one was Swan Lake. Oh. Fantastic. And then, ah, the Grand Canyon was one of the other ones. Yeah. Grand Canyon, and then we listened to the New World Symphony and uh, and the Trout. And um, and then suddenly they said, okay, let's play the, the other one as a quartet and say, oh, we, we could, couldn't understand the picture. But right. it was like, a, that's not like the picture we have here of the Budapest Quartet. I mean, there's all those people are old and and very serious. And this one had like long hair or something really funny. <laughs> and I say, oh, but it's, it's from England, Liverpool. So it's the Liverpool Quartet. Ah, okay. So it's, they're like young, young guys like us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we start playing it and, uh, and we were a little surprised because we never heard them before. Right, right. So, uh, and we didn't know the songs and, and <laughs> normally I, 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 I sing the, and it was yesterday, but it wasn't yesterday because it was not composed yet, mm. but it was similar, but yeah. the guitars they were playing in those days were natural guitars, yes. I mean, not electric. So those didn't have a temporary, uh, well tempered donation. Mm. So for us it was a big surprise. We thought at <laughs> the beginning that our machine was broken already. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go from the world's most famous um, band, the Beatles, and go to a very famous violinist who you studied with, Heinrich Schering. Um, How long did you study with him for? I mean, I know you went and studied at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Was it there that you met him? Um, 
And no, and... actually, I met him in Mexico. Okay, yeah. Before I before I went to to the states, uh, we were playing in an orchestra. Uh, we moved to from Monterrey to Guanajuato, mm. Guanajuato City, and they had a wonderful orchestra that my father was part of the founders. He actually he went to Monterrey to be the founder of the orchestra in Monterrey. Mm. So my father was like as I said before a wonderful teacher. So he would look at to the students and he would pick up in a band and say, okay, that person could play the cello, that one could play the violin, that one could play the viola, because already knows the transportation. That's, I don't need to teach them all of that thing. I don't mm. need to teach solfege, so I just go directly to, to the technique of the instruments. And the same thing he did in, in both cities. Mm. And so we moved to Guanajuato and we lived there for a while. And then we went to a newly founded orchestra in the state of Mexico, in Toluca, mm. in which was a larger orchestra. It was supposed to be a big romantic to play the romantic repertoire. So we decided to go there. And my father said, let's go there because we can, we are going to be able to play the big romantic composers. Mm. Because here in the orchestra, maximum, we can play some of the Tchaikovsky's or Brahms symphonies. Mm. And Beethoven, uh, nine was occasionally because not only because of the chorus, but also because of the size of the extra horn and the contrabassoon and the piccolo, mm. blah, blah, blah. So we moved to that city and we started playing, of course, Ostakovich, Mahler, Bruckner, uh, uh, Stravinsky, big works, and getting to, to the big repertoire. And it was in the orchestra, an assistant of Henrik Scherin. Mm. And when he heard us playing, uh, he came to talk to my father and say, you know, you have done wonder a wonderful job with your kids. He said, they have wonderful technique. I mean, and I, if you want and you trust me, I would like to bring them up to another level. Yes. And my father said, but by all means. <laughs> I said, I've been looking to have a teacher. And one of the reasons we went to Guanajuato also was because it was a wonderful teacher there and here, of course. and. And so we began to go into the technique of this guy, and he told us, you know, I'm the assistant of Henrik Schering. Mm. And he's going to be coming in the summer. It's going to be two, two months here. And i like to see if he would listen to you in master mm. classes. I said, for sure. <laughs> no, honestly, <laughs> what a gift. So um, we prepared ourselves, and then we went in the summers and played for about six or seven weeks mm. uh, of master classes. And we had the opportunity to play in front of other violinists and always with an accompanist. And he would teach us tremendously things, you know, technical, but musical things. Mm. And they were really very important that uh, for our age, I mean, I was, I was only 17. So it was important and my brother was 18. So we together wanted to develop more the technique of playing the violin and making music out of just the, having a better technique. Yeah. And that's what we did it for, for three years, three summers. And but the end of that summer, I talked to him and to my maestro sharing. And I said that I wanted to go to study abroad. Yeah. And, and he said, well, let me see what I have someone that can help me say, but honestly, I want to study conducting. <laughs> What do you mean conducting? With you're a terrific violinist. You have a future. I say, no, maestro. Uh, that leave it to my brother. 
yeah. that's for my brother he really <laughs> loves violin yeah i play the violin and i love it and i think i learned a lot mm. playing second violin in the quartet and playing in orchestra's uh, first violin and and in that point i was studying french horn too so mm. I, I played the french horn in the orchestra i said but i, I really want to be a conductor and he said oh really what a waste <laughs> well at least he was honest i mean that's the, the, that's yes, the point he was it? honest yeah at and least he was okay, honest so then yeah. i en enrolled for a summer in in the permanent school mm. up in maine in the united states and i was accepted so i went there for one summer and during the my stay in there i was conducting and Adam Montu and Maestro Charles Brook were very satisfied with my my talent. Mm. And they say, you know, you are not going back to Mexico. <laughs> so you want to stay here and you're going to go on to continue developing your knowledge about music in a more kind of higher level situations. And where you have to really study and make your head organized that not only your spirit was would would go out, but it would go with with organization. Yeah. More yeah. um more more technical in a way, but it's more Cartesian. Mm. And I said, well, I don't know how can I do that. So I said, no, I already wrote to several schools, and they are willing to hear you on audition for you to go there. So you go back to Mexico, get all your paperwork. You had to bring blah, 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 blah. And yeah. you came back in the summer and then you stay in the United States and we'll see which university or college you will go to. So after trying, we find the Catholic University in Washington, DC, uh, will give me a scholarship, yeah. but also the opportunity to study conducting. My major was violin, my minor, minor was French horn and conducting. Because yeah. in the United States, the undergraduate doesn't exist for conductors. No, that's right. Have, yeah. Yeah. You had to have first um, an undergraduate, then you go to grad school to study conducting. But the teachers were a little more than satisfied with my 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 talent. They actually said that they were kind of impressed and they I could solve things and they haven't seen in years. Mm. And I had a picture pitch and I could identify chords and all of that stuff with just one hearing. And um, so they say, okay, we accept you on the program of conducting too. We want to be with elder people because mm. most of them are like four or five years older than you are because they are doing the doctor's degrees or masters or whatever. Masters, yeah, yeah. So I say, ah, on the contrary, that's what I want. I want higher competition. Mm. I want to be challenged by people that already are in the career mm. are already in the mastering the the tools so i was there uh, for my undergraduate and then madame montu in the summer so we go to the montu school and mm. madame montu decided that i should go and study in europe mm. so she told me one day that she had bad the heart through the other friends and there that they like me and love me and put some money to pay for my ticket and for some money to spend pocket money and so i went to paris mm. to continue my studies with there with charles brooke mm. 
Well, that 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 yes. that ties in with uh, an earlier episode, episode fifty-eight. Hugh Wolf, the American conductor, he was studying in Paris, and he also studied with Charles Brook, and he mentions that Charles Brook could be strict. He could also be very kind. He could be, you know, he told stories about him. And how did you find Charles Brooke um, as, a, as a mentor, as a maestro, but also maybe as a person? How did you find him? Well, I have to say that we were totally afraid of him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was afraid of sharing. Yes. But, but I was more, even more afraid with Charles Brooke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maestro Brooke could be cruel. Okay. I mean, because he would try to make you realize that you had to have a strong personality, mm. not an ego, yeah. not an ego. He would break your ego. He would say, your ego is interfering to the music. Right. Nothing can be more important than music. Yeah. And the minute he would say that you were like a, oh, expressing <laughs> like you were yeah. in the music, he would come and say, ah, 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 that's monkey business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, concentrate, make music. So get the sounds out of the musicians. Don't follow the music as making like choreography, like you are a yes. dancer. Yeah. That's a diff different tool. He said, this is, you, you have to command. You, they have to feel your energy, not you, their energy. Mm -hmm. So he would be tough in front of the students, all the students and the whole orchestra when you were not concentrating, when we were not concentrating on the music, he would challenge you with questions like, what does that mean? What is that the meaning of a passage? Uh, who's the composer? Where was he born? What was uh, his idea? And you say, well, in the dictionary, say, no, 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 no. I don't want <laughs> you to tell me what somebody else says. Yes. I want you to tell me, what do you grab from the score? Yeah, yeah. What is what the score is telling you? Yeah. So let's say pick up the La Premier du Fond, the DBC. So yeah. what is telling you when it begins a fruit solo? Is describing you something, the composer's feelings, his mind, his thoughts, the way of seeing life, the way of seeing uh, nature or something. So that's what is important. Mm. Not what you read in a, a book and it tells you that the afternoon of a phone was whatever. Yeah. Said, people might have made a mistake. Maybe you can make a mistake too. Yeah. Said, but but at least you got it from the music, not from somebody else. Said, yeah. After you learn all of that, then you can read and then you can compare notes. Don't criticize, compare notes. He said, but before you get influenced by someone, I want you to learn how to do it yourself. So then you compare notes and say, oh my God, I was so wrong. <laughs> oh my God. Um, I, I got it, you know, I, yeah. I, I nailed it. So at one point he gave me an assignment or he gave us assignments, but uh, he would give a long list yeah. of 50 works. And he noticed that out of those 50 works, we, we had to choose two of each category, you know, it was classical, romantic, modern, uh, light classics and mm. contemporary. Yeah. And he said, you, you can choose two out of any of those categories. So he noticed and no one picked up an, a, a selection of a contemporary composer, uh -huh. a living composer. Yeah, yeah. So he said, you know, I'm a little disappointed with all of you guys. And no of you chose to do this, uh, uh, this composer's piece. So, so I'm going to give you 
five minutes and you decide who's going to do that piece. If not, yeah. I would choose the volunteer. <laughs> choose the volunteer. volunteer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we are all looking at each other, Hugh Wolf and many other ones, uh, Neil Gerlman. And, and so we are all looking at each other as who's going to do it. So finally, it came the moment that was master was gonna call it, and I lost my hand. Mm. And he said, "Good, I'm so glad, and and you um, chose to be the chosen volunteer." <laughs> <laughs> he said because, and then he showed me that he already has been giving the assignment to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I was impressed that he would know that. Yeah. So. I went home and study and came back at the following day, uh, thinking that he was not going to do the piece. And suddenly he calls such and such piece. Yeah. And, oh, it's my piece. And it's mm. the first piece. And I ran to get my, grab my score and I put it there and I start conducting. And everyone was laughing. <laughs> I mean, the sounds when they were coming out there was not exactly what we were expecting, you know? Yeah. It was worse yeah. Than than hearing the, the guitars in those days. <laughs> not intonation. No, it was it was nothing that we were expecting. Mm. And I didn't know where to grab the thing. So I started laughing too. Yeah. So and I saw the faces of all the students, conducting students and the orchestra, and they were like, come on, we are wasting our time, you know? And just get through it. And I saw Maestro Brooks' face and he was <laughs> livid. <Yeah. laughs> he was livid. Mm. And so I finished and he said, You come here. Yeah. He had a lisp. He would talk with a lisp. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So he came to me and said, And also he was Hungarian. Mm -hmm. uh, so he would say Hungarian with the R like that. Mm. And the V, W would be V. Yes. Yeah. And he would come to me and uh, I would say, Vel. <laughs> what do you think? I said, well, maestro, I tried to do that. No, 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 no. I'm truly disappointed of you. Mm. I thought you were a good conductor, but you are not at all. <laughs> oh, dear. Do, do you think, do you think that conducting is only conducting beautiful music? Mm. I mean, he's right. Yeah, beautiful yeah. tunes and beautiful rhythms. You think that's conducting? Well, you are totally mistaken. Mm. I don't want to see you. Get out of my sight. <laughs> wow. Go, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you. <laughs> so I was, oh, I was with my ego totally destroyed. Yes, of course. If I had any, because I already had put it before. Yes. So now it was like, what? What's what I did wrong? Then, so I went home, and some of the, my colleagues were there, and I say, "Hey, man, good job! I mean, <laughs> yeah. you did great!" And then, what a piece of shit! Mm. Sorry, but uh, thank you for sacrificing uh, to save us. Yes. And I said. But you don't seem to be happy. No, I'm not happy. Said, Why? <sighs> because mm, I I had to go. I had to go and study. Study what? What is peace? So what do you mean to study? But it's nothing to study. Nothing. I'm sorry. I have to. 
So I left. Yes. I couldn't sleep studying the whole night. So following morning, I thought he was never going to call me again and talk to me. I was yeah. concert master, so I would get up and tune the orchestra. And when I was tuning the orchestra, I feel someone is pulling my my leg. Yes. And I turn around and I just say, you, you start. Mm. I, I say, oh, really? And right now, yeah. quick, quick, quick. <laughs> So I dropped my violin and break up the score and grab my baton and I announced uh, what we were going to be doing and everybody began to laugh and I said, excuse me, uh, let me work on the piece. Yeah. Okay, so at this portion, I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to that. Now let's play it together. Okay, now you, now you, blah, blah, blah. I have organized the piece and everything. Then play, let's play a little bit together. And I blah, blah, blah. So I finished and I saw Maestro Brook sitting in the back. He was like, a... <laughs> <laughs> success. Yeah. The pet, so, yeah. He'd made the penny drop for you. Um, he'd, exactly. made, yeah, he'd made you realize that, uh, yeah, that sometimes you have to be an advocate for music that you maybe don't personally like, but, or is, or you haven't yet fully understood, but you sometimes you have to stand there and, and put it together. You have to take it apart, put it together. I mean, I watched Simon Rattle do it week after week when I was playing in the orchestra in Birmingham, the, the best at it ever. You always knew who you were playing with, how to fit together, and then mm -hmm. the piece would grow on you. But it, it's no different for him or you or I than it is for the orchestra musicians. Yeah, sometimes you look at a score and you can't make head nor tail of it, but through the rehearsing process and taking it seriously, then something happens. Um, I think it's it's such an important thing. By God, he sounds like a real character. Uh, he sounds like, as you said, you were frightened of him, and I'm not I'm not surprised why. Um, he, he sounds like a, a real a real force of nature. Um, but I seem to remember also that Hugh Wolf saying that part of it he thought was also because his his own career was was not a massive success to some degree. Was, am I right in remembering that? Yes, he was uh, successful, but he had a bad temper. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. He had a yeah. bad temper, and he was when he was trying to make the career. It was the beginning of the unions and the beginning yeah. of all those things, and would not resist. The screaming and the yelling and the yeah yeah and, and even well I mean nowadays you you cannot survive as a conductor with a temper like that uh, but yeah. even then there was a line had to be drawn somewhere you know where yeah, yeah. where even the maestros were more tyrannical than they are now um, but even then that somebody's going to draw a line somewhere. Well, it worked because, you know, you. I'm just looking at some facts and figures here. You know, you spent uh, I, either four or six years at the Opera de Bellas Artes in Mexico City as music director, and then immediately from then you spend 17 years at the Orchestra Sinfonica Nacional de Mexico back home, mm -hmm. um, whilst also having your music directorship in 1988, so I mean, yeah, around the same time, starting music director of the Flint Symphony Orchestra, which you're still there in your 33rd season. Um, mm. We're going to come to Buenos Aires in a minute, but I'm going to lump it into the next question, which is, you know, there is this perceived attitude, and you know, it's borderline. I'm trying to think what it could be between you know Latin American temperament and North American temperament with orchestras. 
how how many or do you see differences between the orchestras you used to conduct in Mexico and and now do conduct in Buenos Aires, and also with your orchestra in Flint? But obviously, you've guessed it all over the place. I've seen you know in Europe, in North America, Canada, wherever. Do you perceive any big differences between the way the orchestras work in one half of the equator to the other half of the equator? Yes. Well, um, it's like everything in the in the Anglo-Saxon versus mm. the Latin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Latin world, and Anglo-Saxons are more. Uh, look, they look serious, and they mm. look like uh, everything has to be done uh, before you before you even start. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's about that, and afterwards, the satisfaction is. We did a good job. Yeah. You did a good job. Yeah. And you think that's the end of it. Mm. And and with the Latins, we are waiting a, a little bit. And then we come to the place and we start discovering how it would end. And then at the end of the first rehearsal, we celebrate and oh, it's great. Mm. And the concert and blah, blah, blah. And then we, let's go and celebrate. And everybody gets excited. Mm. And But then probably the following day, they don't even remember. <laughs> and then you get a, like um, I always compare this to a dinner that yeah. I had in my first time that I was invited to a dinner in the United States. They told me, you know, we want to for you to come to our house for dinner. Um, we we start with some drinks quarter to six. Mm. Okay, so I said okay. So I came quarter to six to have dinner and. For drinks first, yeah. and then at six o'clock was dinner served, and then after dessert, probably a coffee or something we have and talk about. And at eight o'clock we say, "So nice to have you tonight with us." It was a real pleasure <laughs> yeah. to come to our house. Yes. Eight o'clock. Yeah. So um, I thought, my God, did I say something wrong? Mm. I was not enthusiastic enough for the food yeah i was not yeah. complimenting uh, to the chef to the lady or the man whoever cooked that night oh, what and i was feeling so embarrassed yeah. so at eight o'clock i've been sent home from a from a, <laughs> from a dinner party in mexico you go there at eight o'clock is nobody there mm. yeah <laughs> the <coach laughs> is not there no, no, nobody started at eight o'clock no Nobody's exactly started. Yeah. yeah you start at 10 and 11 and, and it, if at midnight you say I, I gotta go, they feel mm. offended and mm. you want to leave. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the opposite. So then I I say, oh God, I said something wrong. So following day I go back to the, to the rehearsal and have uh, check my mail and I found this nice card and I say, it was so lovely to have you in our house to share the dinner and the stories you told us were so wonderful. And we appreciate that the comments you make about the, the food, and we did it with our with our hearts and blah blah blah. And I said, "Oh, that's so nice." Mm. And and then I understood that that's the way things are. Yes, of course. And yeah, that's the way we all behave. You know, is uh, is the way the the traditions are, mm. the temperament, yes. the Anglo-Saxon world and versus the Latin world. Mm. So I find it with the orchestra similar. Mm. You know, it's um, the, the, the delivery in, in the classical orchestras, I mean, the Latin orchestras, the delivery is very immediate. Mm. 
Mm. They react to loudness and passion immediately. Uh, what with the Anglo-Saxons, first you have to put play, uh, things in place mm. and then you free yourself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's true. Um, I mean, my yeah. experiences with your orchestra in Buenos Aires, you know, people say to me, well, what are rehearsals like? I said, well, they're, they're noisy. You know, people are talking. Um, but <laughs> the point is they're not talking, you know, they're talking about the music. They're talking about the reason why you're in the room, which so, in my mind, I'm never upset by that because you think, well, yeah. there's a passion in the room because they're talking about the passion. They may be talking about you know, a Boeing or they might be talking about where they're going to breathe. But you also have people asking questions from the strangest places. And I don't mind yeah. because it means everybody in the orchestra is is really passionate about making music and that's yeah. good i mean you know there has to be some point where there has to be you know you quiet enough for you to make a point and you know they do but they, they what they don't just do is sit there in silence and then sort of work it out all afterwards and beforehand which you're right that you know that that's that's not what it's like um when it comes to buenos aires you started there as prin uh, principal conductor of the buenos aires philharmonic in 2007 and then in 17 uh, while staying um, with the Buenos Aires Philharmonic, you become General Artistic and Production Director of the Teatro Colón. Now, for those who don't know, the Buenos Aires Philharmonic live or they play in the Teatro Colón, and the Teatro Colón is a, as an opera house which has its own orchestra called the Orchestra Estabile. So basically, you've become, in the German world, a GMD, a General Music Director. You're, you're running yeah. the opera house, but you also, rather than just with one orchestra, there are two orchestras there. How are you finding that on your time? Um, so between you know, you've obviously got two big commitments, that huge commitment of Buenos Aires, but also you you're still in Flint, uh, Michigan and 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 running and being the music director there. How have you found your time um constraints? Because in the German job, you know, conductors have come on this podcast and complained about the fact there's so much admin and bureaucracy. Uh how have you coped with it? Well, same thing here with bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm swamped with bureaucracy, but I tried to have a team that yeah. would do the uh, concentrate in one area each. Yeah. In production, I needed to concentrate in opera. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another one in ballet and another one in programs. Yeah. And so I tried to have that since I was in the other side before. So I knew that I had to do the Philharmonic. Yes. So, and I had an, a director there. Secretary director that would operate all the things. Uh, so I only had to really be worried about the music. Mm, mm. So now with all this, I I do the planning, but then I free myself with the rest. So mm. I do the planning and now everybody to work. Mm. So then I can be creating more ideas for the future. Yeah. And for me, a performance tonight. It's already gone and it's already passé. Yeah, yeah, I had to yeah. think about the the two months ahead or the year ahead. Mm. So I've been doing this now for five years, and uh, and it's a tough position, mm. and it's a little bit hectic. Mm -hmm. um, I've been enjoying it very much, uh, but also I know it's a position that doesn't stay forever. Mm. Mm. Uh, because it becomes a little bit in the political portion. So when th things will change in the political scenes, your time is going to be up. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a little bit different of being music director 
because music director, you know, you can stay 17 years or 20 years or 30 years. Yeah. And, uh, and as long as you're creating a good relationship with the, with the ensembles, or you think that, that for your own health, <laughs> uh, yeah. traveling, the spending of the time or being away from your family uh, comes, then it's time to really uh, see uh, other venues. I mean, uh, other places or other horizons mm. uh, that, that would come by, you know? And so we have to understand that that's part of life. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of, absolutely part of life. Uh, this, this is not like uh, we got married and we were going to be together until one dies, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> that, that was, I mean, that was going to be my next question is, you know, do you still have time to go and guest conduct? Do you want to go and meet new orchestras? I mean, are you happy just doing, you know, the ones that you love, uh, you know, Flint and places that you go to regularly, you know, Washington and, and Buenos, Buenos Aires, both in the Estable and the Phil? But do you, mm. you know, do you have time to go and do it or do you want to go and do it? You know, that some conductors say, well, actually, no, since COVID, I'm just going to stick to my friends. But, you know, what, what do you, how do you see it? I mean, as you said, the politics in Buenos Aires, I know because of my friends, you know, um, that decisions are made due to who's running the city, who's running the country, and sometimes those decisions can flip 180 degrees because of an, mm -hmm. an election in the city or in the country. You know that that these things happen. But you know, I just thought I'd throw it in there as a big global question about you know how much time do you want to spend guesting or have to guest? I I love guesting yeah. a lot, and throughout the years uh, with the position, I had to diminish it. Yeah. But, uh, but now when I I know then that I have two years to go before something might happen, actually I will know next year yeah. what will happen with the political situation, and I'm, I'm seeking to to broaden my horizons. Yes. So, yeah. and I mean, and everybody knows that it's not a secret. I mean, it's yeah. it's nature. Yes, of That's course. The thing, you know that happens, it happened when I was in Mexico too. Yeah. I, I knew that a political situation was going to change. So I started doing my movement to go to someplace else. Yeah. Um, that's what actually I I was able to come here. Yes, yeah, yeah. But now uh, if something else would come out, I would would see. It's yeah. nothing is, I don't have the crystal ball. But I if only we had a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. If only, yeah. Yes, if only that would be great. Yes. Uh, but I keep enjoying it. Uh, I talk to the players and work on things uh, musically, and sometimes you know because you don't have the time uh, in the Philharmonic. But also as an artistic director, I had to go and represent the the, the theater yeah. in places. Uh, go and see the productions, the rehearsals of the other conductors doing the opera, for example, or the ballet mm -hmm. inclusive. And I sit there and watch what they are doing. Not that I'm going to censor anything. It's just uh, to know what's what what, what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not like I just go and close the door and do whatever you want. It's it's a big plus point about being the general music director of you know somewhere like the Teatro Colón and having to be there so often is that you're going to have time when you can go to watch 
an opera in the evening. You go and watch, well, like when we met, the Philharmonic perform because it's not yeah. your week and your, and you can keep your eye on. It's like Zachary Oromo told me that, you know, he always listens to the broadcast of the BBC Symphony Orchestra where he's the chief conductor when other people are conducting him to see how his orchestra is playing. You know, that's a good thing about running an, a, a radio orchestra. But you can go and see them and you can keep an eye on them and you can work out who they like playing with, who they don't like playing with, you know. And that's a positive, I would say, um, compared to other music directorships where, you know, I'm sure when you finished in Flint, you then fly back to Buenos Aires or, or to Mexico and you don't know what they're doing in between. I don't know if that's true. That, that is true. <laughs> but it's true, <laughs> of every, it's true of every music director really in the rest of the world is that, you know, they don't have time, yeah, they don't have time to stop behind and see who's conducting the next week. They, they can't do that. No, no. Hmm. I used to, was another colleague of mine, uh, we went together in a program with Hugh Wolf and and uh, Carl Sinclair. I don't know if you know him. Mm. Carl also. Uh, we were in Michigan, yeah. but we never seen each other. We knew <laughs> our names. Yeah. But I was coming. I mean, actually, I was coming to Michigan, but I was in St. Paul. I was with St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Yeah. So I I was going back to St. Paul, and we, I'm in the Detroit airport, and I just took the position at the Flint Symphony Orchestra in Michigan. Yeah. And I knew that he was in Ann Arbor, uh, yes. close to Detroit, in yeah. Ann Arbor, where the University of, of Michigan sits, but the orchestra is independent from the university. So, but we never seen each other. And suddenly I got out of the airport to wait for my ride to show. And I'm carrying my carry-on. And there is only a man, uh, next to me seemed to be waiting for a for a ride to and we kind of smile at each other but i, I saw my car coming and it had the sign uh, say flint uh -huh. so he was looking at me and then he saw the car and then he saw the tag i had a tag of the simple chamber orchestra uh -huh. so he said excuse me he addressed me and i said yes he said, are you Enrique Dimec? Mm. And, I, and I say, why? I say, because I just put pieces together. I saw Flynn, I saw St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, yeah. and I just read that you are the music director of the Flynn Symphony Orchestra and came from St. Paul. Yeah. I say, don't tell me you are Carl Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we met, and then uh, we became friends, and we've been. Uh, doing things together and then he moved to California and I moved to California too. I was in Long Beach and yes. he is in Pacific. And uh, so we've been doing uh, correspondence and, and sharing things, uh, sometimes podiums exchanges as they call them, but we don't like to call it that way mm. because we are not really exchanging the podium. We're just exchanging, exchanging the experience. Yes. Yeah. Right. To, to do, to make music in the highest level. And um, and with people then can trust you and you can trust them, and it's not nothing but making good music. Yeah, yeah, is the whole idea. So, but it was a funny story then that we met in the airport only. So that's the way it is. But 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 you know, before this podcast, you know, the only way. I would ever have met another conductor would have been in an airport or a train station or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to be there 
highly unlikely other than obviously we met backstage but that doesn't happen very very often at no. all um but most since this podcast i've met over well over 100 conductors now for the first time and we you know we've got on very well and it's been nice to talk about conducting and maybe in the future it'd be nice for for conductors to meet more often rather than you know fleetingly by a taxi rank in an airport um <laughs> you know it just doesn't happen I have one final question before we get to the very important 10 questions, of course. It's a, okay. it's the, it's, yeah, but this is the 11th question, uh, Enrique, which every conductor has been asked. When you see a new score or have a new score or learn a new piece for the first time, do you have a system of learning it? Do you start at the beginning and work your way through? Do you do research at any point historical? Do you listen to recordings? And for the geeks and students and me personally, are you a scribbler in? Do you write lots of things in your score? Do you use red, blue, black, highlighter pens? Or, or are you one of these geniuses who doesn't write a thing in their score? How do you go about it? <laughs> I am kind of in, the be in between. Okay, yeah, yeah. Genius when it's needed and, and practical when it's needed. Yeah, of course, yeah. Meaning that I'm not, not that I, I'm a genius, but you know, at uh, the very beginning of my studies and career, I used to color everything. Mm. I used to for this instrument for that, but and actually that came because when we were sharing with other conducting students, yes, uh, everyone was learning and and share something. So then we would write the harmony construction, the melodic lines, yeah. and so put everything in the score. Yeah. So that was the very beginning when I used to do that. Then I. I came across to Max Rudolph mm. and Max Rudolph in Philadelphia. And I went to take a course and he was teaching there and he came and saw my score and I said, oh my God, this is a, a piece of contemporary painting. <laughs> yeah. Yorma, Yorma Panela said the same to me. He said, what's, yeah. all this, what's all this red and blue and squiggles and arrows? And I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So he said, oh, okay, I'm sorry, Maestro, but, you know, that is from my uh, school years, college yes. years. Yeah. And he said, everything has to be here. Mm. You have to learn it, to put it in your head. He said, yeah, yeah well, it's true. Well, thank you for the advice. So since then, I mark the minimum. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I mark phrases when it's a new a new piece, and I try to figure out if it's every four bars or every eight bars, and we change the melody. Yeah. But I don't do the big line like this. Yeah. I just put it like a line, and, and I know that this is beginning just for a glance. Yeah, I try to make sense if that is the case, and the harmony construction and the format, of course, uh, to simplify the understanding of the work. Then when I see that the piece can speak something to me, then I go and do uh, research about the composer and the idea of the composition yeah. and see that clicks yes. in, the, in the music. And that's more or less the process. 
At this point, I asked Enrique if he listens to recordings at all in this process. We then went on to talk about how many recordings you should listen to, as well as whose recordings you should listen to. If you want to hear that short discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. On my Patreon page, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions, and much more. You can hear over 19 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can listen to 19 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. You can read articles I've written on programming, score marking, and a brand new series I'm starting soon on string playing. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Enrique Arturo Di Mecca. Enrique, it's come to that point of the podcast where we must go to the 10 questions. And as ever, I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The kind of noises I like are the ones that have music on it. Mm. And the one sound I don't like is silence. Oh, really? You're not a fan of silence? I'm not a fan of silence. And do I you prefer think... to hear noise and chaos and whatever. <laughs> I, I'm not afraid of that. Yeah. Uh, I know my, my ear is doing well, but I like to hear sounds. Yeah. I don't like the sound of nothing. I mean, except when it comes to it stopping music, when you have that Brahms moment, you know that... Yeah. And that silence is louder than the sound you produce with the orchestra. Absolutely. So then you really feel the impact. But I mean, but that I think that's what I. So there speaks somebody who's maybe grown up in cities all of his life. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm much the same when I go and you know we go out, we you know book a cottage in the country for a few days away, and you're sitting there late at night and you can hear nothing, and you just think, oh, I, yeah, I, it's nice to hear a police siren somewhere off in the distance or you know whatever. Mm. I mean, you can always hear birds singing. Uh, well, that sort of leads us on to question number three, which is. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? 24 hours free? I wish I had. I one. know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, and also preferably preferably not, no, no music involved. You know, if you just had a fantasy 24 hours, how, how would you like to spend it? Well, without having to be no sound, mm -hmm. in a place that is quiet, quiet in a sense. Yes, yes. But yeah. then offers... Uh, some beauty. I mm. would like to be in a mountain, yeah. looking down, looking to a lake mm. and to a mountains in the front yeah. uh, with some snow, even better. Yeah. Um, and just enjoying the scenery and enjoying the, the birds flying and, and sometimes, you know, little uh, waves coming out of a fish or something and it's in the water. Yeah. Uh, um, and hearing those sounds that the nature would give. And and unfortunately, when it gets into that point, and immediately think of Mahler, yeah, yeah, think of yeah. Beethoven, 
yeah. you know, think of all those composers and were composing about nature and sometimes some tunes come to my mind. Yeah. But then I understand why they were composing those things. Of course. And have the feeling. So I think that it would be the way I would like to spend those 24 hours. Now, I've never been and I've always wanted to go. Um, either sort of northeast from Buenos Aires or direct south. I've always wanted to go to Mendoza and I've never been. And I've always wanted to go to Patagonia and I've never been. Now, you've been going to Buenos Aires now for many, many, many years, 15 years or so. Have Has anybody ever taken to Mendoza or Patagonia? Oh, yes. I've been yeah. in Mendoza several times. Yeah. I was there just in October last year in Patagonia. I was I went to see the the glaciers. Yes. So, I mean, the picture you described of being high on a mountain, looking at a lake with more mountains around you and snow, I immediately had pictures of Patagonia in my head. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. So, well, well good, lucky you that you've been. Yeah. Lucky you that you've been. That was fabulous. I, I went there in, in 2020, in the beginning, just was my last trip before the pandemic yeah. um, that I took. Uh, I wasn't going to, but I said, why not? You have two, two or three days off. Yeah. Um, take the opportunity, otherwise it never is going to happen. And since that year also, I was in Israel and traveling through Israel. So I said, well, why not? I mean, who knows what's going to happen? in the future yeah look what happened look what happened indeed uh question number four uh, you've already mentioned in the previous in the 11th question about marking up scores so many names from the past but i wonder who would be your favorite conductors of yesteryear of yesteryears um depending on of the style Mm -hmm. and the repertoire probably as well the repertoire exactly depending on the repertoire yeah. I enjoy a lot Karajan. Yeah. A lot of the works. But Montu in the French repertoire for me is mm-hmm. the yeah. and then um Beechen in the English repertoire. Mm-hmm. And uh Stokowski, um whatever that he was doing then was not uh then it was not totally classical. Yes, and he used his magic of creating an um, an inventive. Yeah, uh, the Stokowski sound, as they called it. Exactly, Stokowski yeah. sound. Yeah, and then I also enjoyed the way of the of the conductors that build the five most important orchestras uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, Ormond in Philadelphia, uh, Metropolis in New York. Um, in Kusevinsky and Munch in in Boston yeah. and Sale uh, in Chicago, Cleveland, and, uh, in Cleveland, excuse me, yeah. and then yeah. Yeah. Uh, Reiner in Chicago. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I enjoyed the way they were trying to make the sounds of the orchestra and how they were able to have the different sounds because of the work with the orchestra. So you can identify them mm. just by Dropping the needle. Absolutely true. Yeah. Boston Symphony. Yeah. yeah. Of Philadelphia. Yeah. Because the sound was very particular of each of the yeah. uh, orchestras. Throughout the years, you know, now you drop the whatever, you know, put the iPad. So you just say Sony Records, MI, 
but that's Deutsche Grammophon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the technicians become more important. Yes. They, yes, and they become to mold the sounds of orchestras. So you can say, oh, these are yeah. orchestras, because that's the way the technicians make the sound of the orchestras. Yeah, but orchestras are also becoming less and less characterized. You know, I talked about this with Daniel Harding way back in episode 11, uh, about the fact that you knew you could turn on a, a record and the old the old Leningrad orchestra, you just knew it was them. You knew it was yeah. the Chicago, you knew it. But a lot of orchestras now, everything's becoming much more sort of middle of the road, middle ground. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd hate to say it, but everybody's trying to sound a little bit like the Berlin Philharmonic, you know. Um, uh, and, it, and yeah, it, it has become, it's, I think it's a shame um, that there aren't more people out there trying to make their own orchestra in their own sound. I mean, to some degree, it does happen, you know. Um, I think I could listen to a CBSA recording of Rattles and then a CBSA recording of Oromo, and I think I'd know the difference. Uh, not because I was playing on both, but just because I, you know, I know the, the orchestra sound. But um, well, let's yeah. see. If question five has such an in, uh, interesting answers, question five is historically some people find difficult, some people find easy, but again because they pick repertoire and they pick styles. But who would be your favorite current conductors? Current conductors, well, that's a little bit uh, kind of a hard question to answer. I'll tell you why. Yes. Because most of them are alive. Yes. And I don't want to. To, for them to get back to me and say, you didn't name me. <laughs> well, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person to have got out of answering this question by saying exactly that. Um, you know, I mean, I remember dear John Adams, the composer, he he named four or five, and then he messaged me later and said, oh, can you drop in a sixth one, please? So I had to drop in a, a little recording he'd made. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is so difficult because there are so many and you don't want to upset people. Um, so are you are you going to not give me any answers? <laughs> no, it's impossible. No, it's fine. It's fine. As I say, yeah. Well, the ones that have been having a wonderful career. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, and they are sort of my age uh, thing. So I have some that are in my age range, yeah. Yeah. and there are some that are still alive that are older than me, yeah. and they are the ones that are coming out. Yeah. But as you say. We don't have time so much to go and see them live. No, no. no? So it's only by recordings or by something. And many times there, the engineers interfere. Yes. So it's hard to really say, "Oh, I like that idea. I appreciate this interpretation." So for for those things, you know, we know very well that Duda Mel and and some other other young conductors are doing wonderful careers. And they have wonderful ideas uh, that sometimes you might not think they are so correct. But since they are young and that's the way people want to hear things mm. uh, to attract young generations. So clicks. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A click. That format works. Yeah. Um, and of course, there are many others. And now with the all the latest conductors are coming and it's going to be impossible to really choose one, yes. especially if you are looking at them because uh, they are one more beautiful than the other. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, going to recording, Simon Rattle was used to say that his recordings are like snapshots of where he is at that point in his life. You know, that he doesn't mm -hmm. call them, he doesn't call them the final finished, you know, it's just, that's where I was at that point. And maybe I'll record it again in 25 years and it'll be different because I'll be at that point in my life. You know, um, 
yeah, it's I, I take your answer completely and utterly, and it's fine, absolutely fine. Uh, at least you, you gave me a reason why, uh, and it's a very good reason. It's a reason I agree with. It's one of the reasons why I ask the question because I like making the questions difficult. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, this one is difficult. It is, yeah. But, but there are many, as I say, in my age range. Sarol has probably one of the most wonderful careers ever huh. that anyone can have, being the conductor of Berlin Philharmonic for so many years, and then now London Symphony, plus another German orchestra here and there. Yeah. So and maybe the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, who knows, and then ah. talks about it. Yeah. Oh, well, what? The crickets. <laughs> yeah, the crickets are chirping. Well, let's keep our ears to the ground. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? The hardest one was that one I told you. Uh, the story about having to learn something that I didn't even know. Yes. And how to make it sound. Yes. Um, and that was the hardest one because it really taught me a lot. Mm. Broadened my, my mind and it broadened my understanding of things that my appreciation on logic had to come to a point that had to be together. Uh, so yeah. I think to that moment and to what I'm today. Mm. So now whatever I conduct, as difficult as it can be, uh, reminds me of that moment. So I know how to approach it. So how to make it my own. Mm. And I just conducted uh, here in Buenos Aires, the Symphony for Winds, uh, Stravinsky. Mm. And uh, I substituted the conductor that couldn't make it because of the pandemic. Mm. So I came to to do it and with five days notice. And so I approached it like that, you know, but I went, no, okay, put it together. Mm. And I talked to one of the sisters and said, do you like this music? He said, you know, I'm having a hero, uh, terrible time because it's not my temperament. Mm. I, 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 that's what my teacher used to say. You like to conduct only beautiful music, no romantic music. I like. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. cry. And again, to say, but this is a little bit stereo. Yes. Yeah. So I had to go and just put myself in place. How to really be in that? So it remind me of those moments. Yeah. Remind me always that uh, that nothing is easy. And sometimes the easiest pieces are the hardest one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, right the simplest can be the hardest one because to to have the connection of the musicians with that simplicity, without losing the interest, mm. without losing the emotion to portray, uh, is a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? American Express card. Hmm. <laughs> very good very good i've been waiting for somebody, somebody to try and get around it but it's a very good answer it is a very good answer <laughs> remember that it was the commercial and said don't leave without it yeah <laughs> i do remember it it's a very good answer uh I, of course by being a very good answer that sort of got around the question it's now going on the band list for the next person who's interviewed <laughs> they won't be allowed to say credit card but no you're so right no you can you can basically the world being what it is now, you can basically leave home and go anywhere. And if you've got a credit card, you can survive. You can buy, you know, you can, pretty much anything. You can, if they, like it happened to me one day 
I won't say the place and I, don't, I, I won't say the whole story because it's a little bit, uh, I didn't like it, mm. but I was in the middle of the night in this place and they took the car away. Right. Uh, because they were saying that I was, uh, I was not certain what I was going to, um, but I wasn't driving. The other person was driving. So okay. they took the car away and took the person arrested and then i was in the middle of the street yeah nothing but a box that i didn't even know what was in the box yeah. and my telephone yeah and and that's it so then i said what should i do so i, I picked up my credit card american express and i called the american express concierge yeah and i was outside mexico and it's from mexico so i called and i say uh, you know this is happening to me and i said okay don't worry we send someone to pick you up and we are booking the hotel for you. Oh, wow. Wow. So, of course, it cost me money, but still yeah. I have that opportunity of calling the concierge in the, in the credit card and help me to, to find a place to stay the night. Because I already knocked the door to several hotels in the area and it was all booked. Yeah. And yeah. so I say, okay, that's great. So I waited there and it came so, a taxi. And it took me to this hotel that I had the reservation. Brilliant. Well, and therefore, your answer is now, rather than, you know, uh, cheating and getting around the question, is actually a really good answer. So uh, thank, you for, <laughs> thank you for giving me the answer. Brilliant. Number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? What I would change, that's what I've been trying to change for years. I tried to change the the image and the contact with the musicians that the conductor is the boss. Yep. Uh, I tried to really, that's, I feel it with some orchestras that I go to, and that's why I stayed as long as that, because I tried to make him believe that the orchestra is my instrument. Mm. So, and, and that instrument doesn't play by itself. I need to be the one that makes it sound. I'm the one that is making the rhythm. It's me that is making the, the idea, the musical idea. Mm. So try to make that with a friendly approach, with a energy that would make them feel like you are not afraid. Yeah. And you are not doing it because you are frightened. Mm. You don't do things because you are frightened. You do things because you love what you are doing. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing I I would like to see more often. Not that that the person there is the most powerful and you know and is gonna give you an opportunity to tour and make recordings and give you money and glamour, but it's, and it gives you the opportunity of making music. Yes, absolutely. And you have yeah. the the freedom and you have the uh, understanding and that the instrument of the conductor is the orchestra mm. as i said to my students when i give a lesson you know a piano doesn't sound by itself and this is an electric shit yeah yeah but, yeah but if you have a piano then you put your finger down and it will create a sound, correct? Mm -hmm. So it depends how 
how you do it, how soft you do it, it will respond. Yes. Same thing is with the orchestra. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It most, but the only part is difficult, and then each of the people are making, or each of the sounds is going to be coming from an instrument that is doing the same thing as you are doing, playing that instrument to make the sound of the instrument. Yes. So that is what is the, the beauty of this job, how to make it, then everyone connects. Mm. And if it's, you achieve that as many times as possible, the better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. perfect world, uh, you would think that it's going to be it's a fantasy, as you say, yeah. every day. But uh, it happens more often than none. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, it's it's that mixture of collaboration. It's I, I, I took I took some rehearsals with the CBS own, own youth orchestra last week and from Saturday to Thursday. And then on Friday, the, the conductor who was going to conduct the concert took over. So he did Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I was rehearsing Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony all week with this young orchestra of under-21s. And I said at one point to the first clarinet, I said, try something there. Try a little writ. Try an echo. Try it with me. But then when the conductor comes, who was Joshua Weilerstein, try it with him. He's, he's you know, he won't want to hear it the same way every time. And eventually he'll go, oh, I love that. Do it that way, you know. Uh, or, or he'll have his own ideas, you know, and he'll say, no, no, don't do that. I'd rather you do it this way. But it's that to and fro, it's backwards and forwards, it's collaboration. It's not just standing there, as you've just said at the beginning. We're, you know, we're subservient. Tell us, Mr. Boss Conductor, how you want everything. You know, I don't think orchestras should work like that. I don't work well with orchestras like that. You know, I, it should be a... A whole process where everybody's making music. That's the point. Is that's the point. Yeah. I normally say to orchestras, um, when we are getting to know each other or we know each other better, a little better, and is and say, Do under, do you understand when he says retardando? Do you understand the meaning? Mm -hmm. And when he says accelerando, when you see tempo primo, when you say going ahead. Do you know what is in plain English? Means watch the conductor. <laughs> Very <laughs> watch good. Watch the conductor. Because <laughs> yeah. he's going to do something or none. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly true. Absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, tough to answer because since I was young, I asked my father about my name and yes. he told me yeah. it was Arturo Toscanini. I said, I want to be a conductor. Mm. My father said, well, I mean, it's easy to say. For that, you need to learn all about music, about the theory, about the history of music. You need to play several instruments. You need to understand the psychology of the instrumentalist because yes. it goes accordingly with the instrument and it's a nomin no, doesn't mean anything but except to understand what the process they're going yes. through yeah and i said that teach me i'm only seven <laughs> yeah 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 so that's what i always wanted to be to be i went a conductor and even in my most wild dreams i don't think i i would like to do anything more than conduct mm. even just uh a small little ensemble or youth orchestras or uh, whatever, just to be able to communicate and to be able to pass on 
the the things that I learned from the masters, yeah. the things I learned from my teachers. So to pass the tradition and, and to pass the the idea of what is music all about and to really share it with those people that are going to be going and coming there and they can put anything that is not going to make good music to put it as outside yeah. and they take their coats and put it out there and leave it there yes coming to the hall we are all music uh, makers and sharing it and sharing it i normally say that to audiences too you know and we come to, to practice together for so long and sharing those things with with the colleagues mm. and the reason is because when we come to the stage our mission is going to be accomplished when we are going to perform it and share it for audiences mm. then our mission is being accomplished and right now the audiences need a place to escape to. No, um, we're, we're talking on the 1st of March 2022. Uh, anybody listening in the future, this was about six days after Russia invaded Ukraine. The world needs a place to, for its head to disappear and escape to for a while. And music or art or poetry or literature, we all need somewhere to escape. And it's it can't be stressed how important it is for us all at the moment. Uh, so, yes, yeah. Yeah. I, I... I think that the arts develop more and more and more in the later years when we didn't, when we began to have all this knowledge of the bad things can go in another place of the world. Mm. So mm. then we see, oh, where do I, where, where do I go? Yeah. What is the place to be? It's all you find it in the arts. Yeah. Like yeah. reading, as you say, writing or playing an instrument or dancing or singing or painting uh, anything that is going to be uh, in your spirit that you want to be uh, creative because mm. that's what we do we, we create we have that opportunity to create and if they are destroying things in the other side of the world uh, you know that you have to contribute with the, that energy mm. to probably bring it to out there so it goes all the way there and and we help a little bit to have the peace. Mm, very true. Question 10, and maybe due to current political circumstances, I ought to stop asking if the world were to end tonight, but let's stick with it for now. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, it would be something Mexican. Ooh, like Mexican food. Mexican food, and I would see what have uh, the ingredients to prepare. Mm -hmm. and and that would be the, the choice to to the meal because if i want to have a chance to go to the store and find things yeah. to make a mole and yeah. to make a guacamole or to make any of the big sauce i would see what i have if i had tomatoes and i have uh, onions and i have garlic and i have eggs so i would do something with that yeah. meal in mexican style yes yeah nice nice uh tomato based um it's Mexican style sauce with some eggs in mm -hmm. some style and either fried or scrambled. And then I would see normally I have like two or three different types of wines mm -hmm. that I don't drink alone. That's one thing I don't do. Ah, okay. I don't drink alone. Mm -hmm. So I would have to think 
Well, who I would call. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I was going to say, so very much wine and not a tequila mezcal or mezcal to go with your Mexican food. If I would have a tequila or mezcal, I would do my shot to to open the appetite. Yes. While I'm fixing the dinner, Mm -hmm. while I'm doing all that stuff. And then when I put everything in place, then I would have my wine and... Uh, and and the people you'd invited to drink with you. <laughs> exactly. And who would be the f- whoever answers the phone? <laughs> <laughs> well, put it this way. Uh, next time I'm in Buenos Aires, I hope you're there because I will come round with some wine uh, and we'll hopefully sit down and we'll carry on chatting. It's been an absolute pleasure um, and over the last hour and 20 minutes or so. And thank you very much. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing you again, hopefully one day soon in Buenos Aires. Thank you, Enrique. No, thank you. And it's a pleasure, really, because all the questions that you've been doing, and I can see your answers, too. <laughs> so that also makes me know you yeah. and be closer to you and a colleague in both, in both ways. As a musician, which is first, mm. we are first musicians. We are. And yeah. then our specialty is to be conductors, yes. but we are first musicians. And that's what is uh, the thing that we all need to understand and and to really enjoy mm. and making music uh, whatever opportunity you have playing the violin, playing the piano, singing, dancing, or writing music mm. or conducting uh, is, is making music. Number one. Thank you. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Many apologies for the bings and bongs and notifications you heard today. I simply cannot edit those out if they happen in a room 6,900 miles away. Enrique asked me to let you know about his biography, and the details for that book can be found in the show notes below. Next time... I chat with an English conductor who started out as a very successful leader of orchestras and then transitioned into one of the leaders of the historically informed performance movement. Over a long and distinguished career, he conducted all over the world, but is probably best known for being the founder of the Brandenburg Consort and being the principal conductor of the Hanover Band. But until then, bye-bye.